In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You're advised that any views expressed by the hosts or their guests are not necessarily the views of Tuggy Entertainment or its partners. with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with the three talking heads themselves, Mr. Steve Parsons from Parascience, Mr. Cal Cooper of the world's famous rock parapsychology, and, of course, yours truly, the humble Mr. Van Helsink, right here on Tojinet, Pararex, and beyond. Hello, gentlemen. Good afternoon. So that messed you up totally, right? What messed me up totally right? My new, my new entrance. What, the Ghost Chronicles Next Generation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Have we changed shows? Yeah, I did. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, anyways, you, uh, uh, you, uh, where are you, Steve? Anyways, that's, uh, I've always... Uh, I, live, I live in West Wales, uh, right on the Atlantic coast. In it, uh, the closest big town to me would be Pembroke. There you go. And uh, Cal, where are you uh, broadcasting from? Uh, at the moment, I'm in Nottinghamshire in a place called Skegby, which is right next to Sutton in Ashfield, which I suppose is also next to Mansfield. Cool. And I'm uh, right here in Drake, between uh, Lawrence and Lowell, the uh, two uh, car theft capitals of the world. So uh, here you go. Yeah. But anyways, uh, we were going to have the ghost finder general himself, Mr. Uh, What's his name? Uh, Richard Felix on, but unfortunately, his son uh, had a big toilet order, so they had to take care of that first. So. <laughs> we were spared. No jokes, no jokes, no jokes. No jokes. No, I, I actually found that out, that Richard's son does uh, portable yes. toilets. Yep. Yep. Will, and, Will and, I understand, and, and now, this was really interesting because, I mean, I understand from Richard himself is that uh, they have, um, what do you call, uh, uh, premium uh, portable toilets. In fact, they used it for the Queen's Jubilee. Yeah. So I I have never uh, really seen a premium uh, toilet, but I wonder if maybe we could get pictures. Richard could give us pictures for this. I mean, this would be really interesting to bring about. And I wonder if there are any that are actually haunted. That's just well, given me the thought that if a portable toilet can be haunted, so you can just take the haunted location wherever you want. I, I'm thinking about that, you know. I mean, <laughs> would that be possible? I'm not even going to start speculating on that. I'll leave this one with you two guys. And that just goes ha- back. The haunted <laughs> premium portaloo, as used by HM the Queen on her coronation jubilee year. 
I, I tell you, Richard, Richard just isn't real sometimes, is he? He's a great bloke. He's a fabulous friend. But, boy, he talks it, and now his son delivers the means to collect it. Oh, I'm not touching with that one. Richard is just... <laughs> it, it's, He's it's a great sad. friend of me. He spoke highly of you, too, Steve. Well, you still... I... I, I Until yeah, his no, Richard, Richard uh, I've got a very soft spot for Richard. He's a fabulous bloke. He's a brilliant storyteller. And, of course, he's a, he's a, a fantastic champion for the paranormal. Mm-hmm. So, anyways. <laughs> so, that's enough about Richard. That's why he's not here today. But, fear not, we have a new topic, which is uh, really interesting. Because, you know, when I first started the paranormal many, 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 many years ago... Um, Somebody brought up my radio show with this character by the name of Harry Price. And I thought he was like a detective or something. But uh, I, I found out that he was really one of the pioneers in, in the paranormal. Am I correct with this? I, you are correct. He wasn't. Uh, I mean, to call him a pioneer, um, he pioneered certainly s- some of the techniques that we still use today. Um, but there were there were other investigators going right the way back through recorded history um, who were sci- who were looking at um, ghosts and hauntings, poltergeists, way, way, way back to, you know, through medieval times um, and beyond. So he's a pioneer of modern ghost hunting. Hmm. So, I mean, you say that... Uh... A pioneer of well, I guess I guess a pioneer in the UK. Uh, do you have someone uh, predecessor of Harry's in the UK? Oh, oh, yeah, oh there are countless William Crooks and uh, William Barrett, um, other members of the uh, S- uh, early SPR. Before that, you you have um, Joseph Glanville in the 17th century, uh, Bos Boswell. Uh, who investigated the Cock Lane poltergeist. Um, history is littered with ghosts. I mean, as long as there have been ghosts, there have been people uh, keen to understand what they are and what they represent. What Harry did do was bring it to the... He was the first of the, of the public ghost hunters, I guess, because Harry knew how to use the media and he knew how to work the publicity machine. Uh, and he got very very badly criticized for it people said oh he's just out to make a name for himself he's out for fame and fortune but you know he's no he was just ahead of the game because he's doing what people like kieran o'keefe matt smith uh richard wiseman in order to get a message across you have to use the tools at your disposal and if you're dealing with with you know the a mass market then there's no point putting it in a scientific journal where nobody ever reads about about it you need to be out there um where you can directly influence research so so harry was harry was the first media ghost hunter yeah um yeah i I just agree with steve there i said you need to be out there turning goats into men that's what you need to do Sounds like you were having some tea there, my friend. Oh, I'm only joking. It's a Harry Price reference. That's one thing that he did. He claimed that he got some incantations in which he could turn a person into or goat into a person. And that was one of the things that was a total sidestep from Harry Price. Everyone knew him as this ghost hunter and having the National Laboratory for Psycho Research 
in um, London and he went and did this that was you know really unusual everyone knew him for his media fame and getting in the newspapers talking about haunted locations but then this was filmed and it was a failure they put this sheet over this goat you could see a big crowd at night time he's there with a top hat on and shouting out these incantations abracadabra and so forth pulls the sheet off and there's still a goat there and everyone laughs and there's some size and apparently they go for another take of it um, but he actually brings in a bit of help with the camera and it's very early cheesy camera work where they've just basically paused the film footage and they switched over the real person and pulled the sheet off and uh, you know but th- those were some of the things that just kept him in current popularity I mean you just said who was Harry Price's predecessor and Steve's just kind of gone through some of the people that were before Harry Price that had very unique methods for testing psychic claims and so forth um, so I don't think there's an exact person that kind of was before Harry. I don't think there's an exact single person that was after Harry. But Harry alone stood out as a very unique character in paranormal investigation. And, um, you know, it was his media faith and just how he could actually get involved with the media, how he knew to manipulate the media in a way to actually keep on getting his research out there and keeping this stuff popular. You know, in the 1930s, it was very, very entertaining as well. It still is today. You know, he got it out there quite a lot. And in fairness to Harry Cal, it should be pointed out that uh, he did state before he did the Brocken uh, goat into a boy, a young man experiment, that he knew it wasn't going to work and he was demonstrating the fallacy of the of the experiment. Oh, I, I honestly... I, I probably assumed that he had have kind of told people that it probably wouldn't work, but I just watched the documentary to it, so they, I think they probably worded it wrong. Yeah, they... So they, they I mean, I apologise. Harry, Harry actually got a great deal of flack for that experiment, to the point where he always regretted, or he almost regretted doing it. He said publicly um, that he did regret that incident. But he did it, actually, to debunk the myth. Uh, but, of course, you know, in a, in a very publicity orientated way and that's not a bad thing because bringing something to the attention of the public i mean people uh, quite recently somebody condemned me for going on most haunted um and said you know you've sold out how can you have any respect for going after going on that show yeah said, sorry well, you, <laughs> you, can't, you you can't change something from the outside you can't stand there and go it's rubbish it's rubbish but what you can do because people watch the show people and the show influences people is you can be involved in the show and give people another perspective give people a different uh, point of view a different explanation um and that's how you know you can use uh, these these shows in a positive way well i mean to let me let's put it this way uh is did he he was like a spell or something? Was that the purpose of it? Was it a spell that he was using, or were there like words that he added that were supposedly going to make this change? Cal, I I can only speak from the the, the footage that I actually saw. I mean, um, Steve knows about the case of Harry Price far better than I do. I mean, I'm a fan of Harry Price, but um, Steve is arguably the bigger fan. Um, but when, when I saw the footage, he stood there and then they focused the camera on his face and he, he comes out with um, a few lines of um, some incantation and then the famous word abracadabra as well. And in, in one set of the footage, it doesn't work. And then the second set, it does. And um, there's all this laughter. Um, so, yeah, you do actually hear these spells being cast out, being yelled by Harry. 
So would you consider Harry a researcher? Well, um, yes. He absolutely was. I mean, he campaigned for most of his career um, to get a parapsychology, the study of ghosts, hauntings, and, and testing of mediums, into uh, acad- academia. He campaigned with and championed it through many universities, even to the extent of offering funding to several um, if they would take on, uh, uh, you know, and fund a department specifically for the study of parapsychology. He certainly got it out there at the time. I mean, I think the 1930s was the the big boom for parapsychology because that's when it started to gain a university status at Duke University. And 1930s, I would argue, the predominant part of Harry's career. A lot of his books were produced around the 1930s and a lot of his fame. And um, that's when the Laboratory of Parapsychology was set up at Duke University with the Rhines. And even in the short film clip, if you go on YouTube and put in Harry Price, you can see him mentioning that it's becoming, psychical research is becoming an exact science. And he named various departments that were taking it very seriously, including Duke. And um, Harry had a close association as well with the University of London. And even today, his archives um, are st- uh, stored there. It's the uh, Senate House Library. The, isn't it the Harry Price Library of Magical Wonders or something like that? The, it's just called the Harry Price Archive, isn't it, nowadays? Is it? Okay. Right, well, it's all there, and all of his letters, um, books, research papers, all sorts are stored there and have been for many years, and people can st- still get permission to go in and go through these. Um, so he's left um, quite a legacy behind him, really. At the time, was there a peer review for his work at all? Yes, Harry wrote um, both. Uh, he had his own peer-reviewed journal uh, for the National Laboratory for Psychical Research. Uh, he also contributed to and was uh, the overseas correspondent for the American Society for Psychical Research uh, and published a number of articles in their journal also. So uh, in addition to his many books... Um, he did contribute to, you know, several peer-reviewed journals. But he also, importantly, ended up publishing his own. Albeit, I think there's about four issues of it. Yeah, yeah I noticed that. He got um, at least a couple of issues of the um, British... and the British Journal of Psychical Research, which he started. And I did look in. There was only a couple of issues that I brought out. But I've got volume 20 of the American... well, the Journal of the American Society of Psychical Research. And that's got some of his investigation reports of people like Eleanor Zugan, which the, was the Romanian devil girl, who would randomly report uh, bites and scratches on her arm. And when they put her in the seance room, she could materialise objects of the sitters that um, had gone missing months ago and she'd never met these people. So um, he'd certainly kind of studied these individual cases of hauntings and people that were claiming all these different abilities, wrote investigation reports, and then they were submitted to peer-reviewed journals. And um, it seems that, you know, that they got through and they were checked over and Price had done his research for them, even though he was seriously handed in many cases saying that there were different flaws to his research, especially with Borley Rectory. Um, Borley Rectory. Um, they brought up claims saying that um, the investigators that Harry Price used, the ones that he trained up to be paranormal investigators, he kind of flooded their heads with a lot of suggestion about the place. So they were bound to report haunting type phenomena because he'd implanted suggestion in their head that something was going to happen to them. 
and you know the various claims that came up here and there. Yeah, now, I mean, to me, the, the most famous thing that he did, and, and I know there were other cases, but the Boley Rectory, which you mentioned, was, was certainly an interesting one. And, and that kind of goes along with what Steve does, too, where you investigate a place or research a place for an extended period of time. And isn't that what Harry did with the Boley Rectory? Harry was involved with Borley Rectory from 1928 until his death in 1948. Um, there were gaps in between, but um, he was constantly interested in following the location, um, which culminated, of course, in him renting the rectory for a full year. And in order to uh, distance himself from, uh, from the, the case investigation, Harry actually advertised for... Uh, people who were interested in forming an investigation team um, and they were given instructions in a, in a famous uh, blue card covered book that Harry produced called the Blue Book, um, which actually forms the, the basis of many, you know, sort of, it, it's, it's quite relevant today, actually, um, some of the instructions within it about uh, controlling a location, documenting uh, events that take place, checking and double-checking for explanations, don't assuming, assume that everything is paranormal. But as Cal, as Cal said, he did put in details you know, of, of um, what they may expect to encounter, which you know, we're more educated perhaps today and understand the effects of suggestion and expectation. Um, and we would, you know... Uh, perhaps leave those out, whereas Harry has, you know, come in for some criticism for actually putting them in. Mm-hmm. I mean, Steve, you've been to Borland Director a few times to do investigations. What exactly did you do while you were there? Because we now know the house is no longer there, even during Harry's time of research in the place, the place burnt down. Uh, it did. It burnt down in 19... I'm going to get this wrong and make a fool of myself. It burnt down at the beginning of World War II. Um, its, its fire, of course, was apparently famously foretold earlier in a seance, um, um, but the, the, the date was way wrong. Yeah, the, the rectory itself has gone to be replaced uh, by um, the garden of a modern uh, house and the existing garden of a building that was adjacent to the rectory. But in actual fact, uh, parts of the original rectory um, we were able to... Uh, locate, uh, for example, the nun's walk is still uh, more or less intact, as is the the famous walnut tree that existed in the rectory garden. Well, you, um, mentioned, you mentioned those two things, Steve. So why don't we explain to our listeners what they are? Because you, I mean, you're familiar with them, but they may not. Okay. Be. Okay. Okay. Well, the nun's walk uh, simply refers to a pathway that ran uh, through the rectory garden, and was the site of. Uh, several sightings of a spectral nun that uh, was seen by many of the family going back uh, 50, almost 100 years before Price's intervention. Um, The Bull family, who had the rectory built, had reported seeing the nun on numerous occasions prior to Price's arrival. Um, And... The area of the garden where she was most frequently seen, but not exclusively, was always referred to as the Nun's Walk. And that's still largely 
uh, intact and exists uh, today. It runs along the back of the modern properties. Mm -hmm. Uh, But some of the wall lines of the rectory, of course, once it was uh, burned and over the next two or three years it it fell into ruin and had to be demolished, um, are actually inside the garden of the modern property that we we had borrowed for the uh, for the duration of the investigation period, um, with the kind consent of the owners who'd given us full access to both the property and the land, um, and indeed allowed us to do a, a test excavation along the lines of the the old rectory, mm-hmm. and we were able to recover a number of uh, Victorian bricks. Uh, that were actually on the on the line of the front of the rectory. Um, we had the bricks checked by a builder who did confirm they were Victorian, and checking with the plans, overlaying the plans of the rectory over the modern um, maps, we are you know absolutely certain that what we did recover um, were some bricks from Borley Rectory. Okay. Uh, but while we were there, we, we concentrated mainly on the road that ran in front of the rectory, which was another key site um, and location where the, the nun had been seen and reported on several occasions. Um, most, most, most unusually, perhaps, uh, twice by, by one uh, village worker who was, who was uh, adjacent to the gate of the rectory, and he reported seeing the nun... Um, I think it was twice in a period of several days. And, of course, the other thing that's associated with the road, the road outside the rectory uh, and the adjacent land is also the tale of the, the phantom coach pulled by, depending on which version, headless horses or being driven by a headless coachman, out of which alight the nun and another figure, sometimes described as headless. Um, directly opposite Borley, Borley Rectory site, is, of course, Borley Church. Um, itself, uh, once the rectory was pulled down, a great deal of paranormal interest began to focus on the church um, and the churchyard. People had reported strange sounds, apparitions, both within and outside of the church. And perhaps most famously was the Enfield Paranormal Group, who... Uh, locked a recorder uh, inside the church and the first attempt failed because the recorder was was allegedly damaged but they did produce a series of recordings um, which have a end with a there's a series of what sounds like footsteps, a door opening uh, and then this, as they describe it, this unearthly moan or groan Um, so you know, a great deal of, of interest has, has focused on the church since the rectory's demise. And um, every July the 28th, which is the historic anniversary of the nun's sighting, which was cited by three of the Bull sisters who lived in the, in the rectory, uh, the, the small hamlet, and it is a tiny, tiny little hamlet of Borley, uh, usually gets its own police station, uh, portable police station, uh, simply because of the number of sightseers. I mean, there were people going in coaches and uh, day trips to see the, the, the Borley spook back in the 1930s. And I've spoken to people who indeed did visit the site in the 1930s on a, a day out from Essex or London. Um, and they're still doing it today. 
to the annoyance of the residents. And there's been a, an awful lot of vandalism in the past. The, the uh, place name, uh, Borley, on the signpost, has disappeared so many times uh, by souvenir hunters that it's no longer put up. Um, and parking inside the, the villages is incredibly difficult be- simply because of the, you know, over the years people have grown weary and suspicious of, of hordes of ghost, hun- ghost hunters. So there is, is there's, no, there's no earnest research being done on that area now? Uh, no, we, we visited three consecutive years, um, but the difficulties of investigating uh, the church because the the uh, incumbent was not very comfortable having you know an investigation take place some of his predecessors had been more comfortable with the idea but the present incumbent isn't um, and of course you've got the difficulties of the location uh, and you know it's a, it's a rather unfortunate history of ghost investigators trampling all over the place and upsetting you know the people that live there so no it's not practical to to conduct an investigation unfortunately but there are still unanswered questions you know there is a great deal of stuff still being reported from the church um, and from the churchyard but at the moment uh, it's no go Mm. i was just gonna kind of bring you up on a couple of things there, Steve. You mentioned about the brickwork and stuff like that. I remember when I was reading um, Harry, Harry's first book on it, The, the Most Haunted House in England, um, you've got the uh, cross-section of the house, and it shows you, I've forgotten whether it's either the, uh, it's the drawing room or whether it was the dining room. Oh, no, it's the, the dining room. One of the side windows was bricked up, and apparently previous reports there were saying that whoever was in there was seeing this apparition of someone stood at the window. And it was argued as to whether it was bricked up because of that purpose it was freaking everyone out or whether there was some other reason. But I just thought that was incredible that someone, if they were seeing an apparition, would go to the extent of bricking it up. Because I think Harry commented saying that now it is bricked up, that room lets in very little light now. So you couldn't see any benefit in actually bricking it up apart from trying to get rid of this apparition that was seen. Do you remember that? That's perfectly true. Um... The the nun was allegedly seen by the Bull family so often um, staring in through the window that that the first, um, which was uh, Henry Bull, who built the rectory, actually ordered that particular side window bricked up in order to prevent it. Um, and as Harry, as Harry Price says, there is no logical reason for this. I mean, you know, the window tax didn't exist. Uh, and there is no sensible or logical reason to brick up this this small window, effectively turning you know this this rather nice room into a bit of a dingy cave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean that's that's fair, basically, does it? I, I know that in one investigation, Tio Flats, they did basically the same thing. Instead of wrecking it up, though, uh, it was a, a window that they would always see the face of a man in, and uh, it is they turned it into uh, stained glass to. Uh, disrupt that, and that's what the way it is now. But so it's, I mean, people who live there and deal with it every day, I, I assume that it, it would be kind of annoying to them. So that's probably why they did it. Ron, can I ask you a question? Absolutely. What do you keep in your investigation um, kit? I would love to answer that question. I only have like 15 seconds. <clears throat> oh, we'll do it after the break, otherwise, it'll ruin it. <laughs> All right, so you're going to have to wait till after the break. 
You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Mr. Parascience himself, Mr. Steve Parsons, the rock parapsychologist, Mr. Keller, and the humble Van Helsing. Right here, I told you that Ghost Channel Pararex can be on. We'll be right back up to Qualit Messages. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. And we'd like to invite you to tune in Ghost Chronicles, the next generation Every Wednesday night At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time On www.toginet.com So, so yeah, what are they going to hear on this stupid show? What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening Like uh, Beyond Bizarre And Cemetery Tripping Oh, that's your deal, right? Absolutely yeah, one of these days you're going to get uh, so scared of one of these cemetery tripping things that uh, you'll, I'll have to get a new co-host. <laughs> I am brave beyond belief. Nothing yeah, we'll see. scares me. Except- so anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Anne and Ron. See you then. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. And we are back. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with... Cal Cooper, Steve Parsons, and yours truly, Ron Cohen, right here on Tojinet, Pararex, Ghost Channel, and beyond. And just before the break, Cal was asking me what I keep in my kit. Is, is that serious? Yeah, yeah, it's a serious question. What do you have in your investigation kit? Uh, what don't I have is more the question. Uh, I mean, I have everything from EMF meter, K2 meters, mel meters, uh, thermal, um, uh, what do you call it, thermometers, First aid kits, rosary beads, holy water, uh, <laughs> ultraviolet lights, uh, dowsing rods, pendulums, 
anything uh, laser lights, uh, any, anything and everything. Uh, if if I think I can use it, it's in there. Excellent. Let's compare that to what Harry had in his case then. He okay. said that in case the reader may wish to know what a psychic investigator takes with him when engaged on an important case, I will enumerate some of the items included in a ghost hunter's kit. Oh, cool. In, into a large suitcase are packed the following articles. A pair of soft felt overshoes used for creeping unheard about the house in order to neither human beings nor paranormal entities shall be disturbed when... Uh, producing phenomena. That's steel, not as funny as it sounds, you know. Steel measuring tape for measuring rooms, passages, testing the thickness of walls into looking for secret chambers or hidey holes. Steel screw eyes, um, lead post uh, lead post office seals, uh, sealing tools, strong cord or tape, and adhesive surgical tape for sealing doors, windows, or cupboards. A set of tools with wire nails, etc. A hank of electrical flex, small electric bells, dry battery and switches uh, cool. for secret electrical contacts. Uh, what else do we have? Reflex camera, film packs and flash bulbs for indoor or outdoor photography. A small portable telephone for communicating with assistants uh, with assistant in another part of the building or garden. A notebook, a red, blue and black pencils. Uh, sketching block in case of drawing instru- instruments for making plans, bandages, iodine, and a flask of brandy in case a member of investigating staff or resident is injured or faints, a ball of string, a stick of chalk, matches, electric torch and candle, bowl of mercury for detecting tremors in rooms or passages or for making silent electrical mercury switches. If anyone's read Steve's recent paper on infrasound, it mentions the mercury for vibrations. Mm-hmm. Uh, cinematograph camera with a remote electrical control of films <laughs> transmitting uh, thermograph with charts to measure it goes on and on there's loads of different cool stuff in there but I especially think the the shoes for creeping and stuff is brilliant but see how much it's kind of changed over time most people now fill their cases full of these EMF meters and god knows what else and he's got basic yeah. things in there that Actually, no, no actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not dissing it. I'm not dissing it. I'm just saying, look at the change over time. No, 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 Cal. But I, I'm actually, in, in reality, it hasn't changed all that much. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. Apart oh. from the bowl of mercury, right. <laughs> which is Ill- illegal. Yeah, you know, Harry, Harry was, uh, you know, he was the first to put these ghost, his ghost kit together. And, you know, you've only done a partial list there. Um, yeah, I I only gave a partial list of what I put in my kit. So, I mean, and be honestly, when, he, when you were listening up, I'm saying, hey, yeah, that's a lot. Like, I mean, some of them were totally different, like the the eyes, the thing. But I do carry a, a kit of... Uh, of hardware, and I do carry certainly batteries, which evidently Harry didn't carry. But uh, I mean, there's tons of other stuff. But in reality, they're very close. And and, and the soft shoe thing was actually not a bad idea. In nope. in reality, it does make sense. Well, if we can if we can just extract a little more from Harry uh, using Harry, as I said, for the for the guy uh, for the team at Borley, he produced um, a book which were his instructions for observers. Uh, we call it today the blue book. Um, in fact, Harry called it the blue book because it had a blue cardboard cover. But let's just go through some of the instructions. Uh, there, there are dozens and dozens, but let's just briefly skip through a few of them. Mm-hmm. Um, each observer should provide himself with the following in addition to warm clothing. 
a notebook, pencils, a good watch with a second hand, a pocket <laughs> electric torch, food and drink. Uh, if he possesses a camera, this can be used. And again, rubber or felt-soled shoes. Mm-hmm. Visit, visit all rooms at intervals of an hour unless circumstances call for your presence elsewhere. Occasionally extinguish all lights and wait in complete darkness, remaining uh-huh. perfectly quiet. Uh-huh. Take exact times of all sounds or happenings. Make notes of your own movements with exact times. Record the weather conditions. If with a companion... Both of you should act in unison in order to have a witness, unless circumstances determine otherwise. If phenomena appear strong, or if experience a succession of unusual events, immediately communicate with one of the persons whose telephone numbers have been handed to you. Expert assistance or further instructions will be sent. Establish your base in one room and keep all your equipment at this post. This will prevent you hunting for an article that you need. Keep your torch with you always. Be careful with all lights. Uh, It talks about making sure that your meals are on time. When asked to take a pair of instruments, examine them regularly with a torch. Record all readings and times in your notebook. Carefully note anything which may appear unusual. Change charts as necessary, marking each the time it was changed. Your reports and notes should be posted onto blah, 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 blah. And onto this idea of suggestion um, and and sort of priming the team, Harry did say possible phenomena may be experienced. Uh, There is some evidence of all of these alleged manifestations over the past 40 years bell ringing. And then he describes if a bell rings, immediately ascertain which bell what room, and if it was in motion. Movement of objects, footsteps, forms or apparitions. And he doesn't tell you about the apparition. He tells you, for example, with an apparition, if seen, do not move and on no account approach. Note exact method of appearance, observe figure carefully, watch all movements, rate and manner of progression. Note duration of appearance, colour, form, size, whether dressed and how dressed, whether solid or transparent, etc. Then, in terms of uh, suggestion, he does actually say, although some or all of the above may be observed, it is very important that the greatest effort should be made to ascertain whether such manifestations, you're going to love this, are due to normal causes such as rats, small boys, the villagers, the wind, wood shrinkage, death watch beetle, farm animals nosing at the doors, trees yeah. brushing against the windows, birds in the chimney stacks, etc. See, he, he, he came up with the techniques that we're using 70, 80 years later. You're right. You're absolutely right. Or, or we should be using in reality. Yeah, yeah, we should be using. I, I was... I, Wait a minute, I would I would bet right now that uh, nine out of ten ghost hunting groups do not use any of those. Uh, well, I don't think they encounter Death Watch Beetle and small children anymore, small boys anymore. But um, well, I mean, they, they you're don't. absolutely right. They don't. They run around with their pocket digital recorders, going, "Is there anybody there? Can you give us a message?" Right. And then stick it on YouTube the next day. 
evidence evidence done case closed yep six arms yep or uh, i've had to uh, yeah deal with orbs all day actually but yeah, harry harry recognized the need for uh an objective grounded you know well-rounded investigation that was thorough that covered all of the bases and was properly and well documented and that's his great contribution you know, he, he knew how to play the media, and for that he got pilloried later, particularly um, by uh, three writers um, who produced uh, a book. I'm just trying to find it now. Um, <laughs> where is it? I, I did that for This House is Haunted. I actually had to leave the room and go through a bag of books that I brought back up from Portsmouth. The Haunting of Ball... No, no, I've got it next to me. Uh, the Haunting <laughs> of Rectory by Eric Dingwall, Kathleen Gold, who was a contemporary and colleague of Price, and Trevor Hall. Uh, and they published the book in, um, he says, in the ni- mid-1950s, 1956. And it was an absolute condemnation of Price, and at particular Borley. It said he was a charlatan, it said he was, you know, a conjurer, he threw stuff, he was caught cheating. Um, and that that sullied his... I mean, mud sticks, and, you know, to a large extent, Harry's reputation has never, ever recovered, despite the fact that um, in the 60s, uh, uh, Robert Hastings produced a, another uh, proceedings for the Society for Psychical Research, which in detail uh, goes through the earlier book and demolishes it and shows that these three authors... Um, were, you know, just out to get Harry. Trevor Hall came back some years later with The Search for Harry Price, um, which was, you know, it's been described as one of the most spiteful books ever written because it it talks about Harry's parentage and how his father um, may not have, you know, married... There was a huge age difference between his father and his mother and he may have got, you know, her pregnant and been forced to marry. And it it just is an absolute... You know, it's just a spiteful work about Harry. Uh, You know, but he has... You know, there is a growing recognition of the contribution he did make. Um, He wasn't without criticism and he wasn't, you know, above using the media. So if you criticise Harry Price for doing it, do you criticise all of these parapsychologists and investigators who also use the media? Yeah, I don't, I don't think you, you should. I think it's, it's a key part of your research is, uh, well, how can I say this? It, in order to understand the, the topic more, and because it's not an accepted topic, if you get it out there, you have more people who will come forward. And so, therefore, you're increasing your research base. Yeah, let, let me give an example where it, it certainly did help and bring um, current scientific discoveries into public recognition. You have the, the investigative recognition of electronic voice phenomena when Attila von Zelay in 1956 recorded anomalous sounds, bangs, raps, and taps, and voices. And then Raymond Bayless... And based in California, the psychical researcher came in and started to do experiments with Attila von Zelay. They rented an apartment. They turned it into a sound studio. They started carrying out experiments. They made reports. 
Um, he was looking at all the possible rational explanations he could for how these sounds would end up on the tape, and he published it in a peer-reviewed journal again, the Journal of the American Society of Psychical Research, as a letter to the editor um, stating what they found, nothing. And even up till 1975, Raymond Bayless said nothing. You know, no one even paid attention to that paper. But as soon as it was put in the journal... About three months afterwards, Frederick Jurgensen got massive recognition for EVP because he had contacts to the media. And so you can find a lot of books, general books on the paranormal, that when they discuss EVP, they say it was discovered by Frederick Jurgensen just because he got the media popularity over other people beforehand that were working on it. And there was even people way before then that had published here and there um, reports of supposedly discovering EVP. So, you know, the, the media can be a benefit if it's used in the right way. Um, but that's the problem. You could be a good researcher and you might not have access to the media. So, you know, unfortunately, the paper might go unnoticed. And, you know, Harry had that benefit there. He was doing good research. He was trying to be honest. He was trying to be serious. And he had the contacts. He also had a sense of fun. I mean, you know, people forget that he wasn't, he wasn't uh, you know, just a dour ghost investigator by night and didn't do anything else. You know, the, the guy did, ha- you know, have a sense of fun. And that does come through in his books and papers. Um, and why not, you know, if somebody's going to say, come on, let's go, let's go and I'd go, you know, I'd go and stand up a German mountain and prove that you, you know, play around with goats and sheets and magic spells because it would be a laugh, you know, like going on some TV shows. It's all, I mean, it's a personal experience as well. It's good fun. Um, but you do, you do get to educate through edutainment. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Even even when I started doing Ghost Project, I mean, a long time ago, it, I mean, originally it was a TV show, and, uh, it, and the interesting part of it, it kind of, if it wasn't for that TV show, I really wouldn't have gotten into it. Uh, so it it kind of opened the door for me, uh, and, and ever since then, I've always been media-friendly anyways, but uh, it's important, I think, to... Uh, reach out to, uh, like I said, it really increases your research base. If if you reach more people, you you definitely have more data to collect. I couldn't agree more. I mean, would 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 this show exist in its? I mean, would I be on? Would Richard Felix have been on? But for that Ooh. television program? No. Let's be honest. You know, people. I've been investigating the paranormal for twenty five, thirty years. Nobody'd heard of me till I popped up on that show. Uh, nobody'd seen the, the the numerous documentaries, but if you get the right sort of media, um, it's allowed me to, uh, you know, express my voice, express my opinion, and to, to showcase the research that that we've been doing behind the scenes, off camera. Have you been on the TV, Steve? Occasionally, <laughs> crime, <laughs> crime Watch. Yeah, I thought I recognised you on that EFIT. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, you guys don't mind if we take a short break and uh, have a uh, new Beyond Bizarre from my favorite girl, Vala Ventura, do you? Ooh, I think we'll let you. Thank you. Uh, oops. Well, why don't we play it then? Blood Relation. If you've ever seen a hippopotamus basking under a hot sun, you probably wondered what the sticky, oily, blood-colored substance secreting out of its pores is. The ancient Greeks thought that the hippo's skin was so sensitive that it bled when exposed to the sun's rays. But according to a team of Japanese scientists, 
The blood is actually the mammal's sweat, which also works as sunscreen and protects the hippo from harmful pathogens. Blood spatter specialists use a combination of biology, chemistry, mathematics, and physics to analyze the circumstance of a crime, including what object was used to commit the crime and where the victim and perpetrator were physically located when the former's blood was shed. The vampire bat is a heavy drinker, consuming more than its body weight in blood each night. The ancient Greeks believed that the blood of the gods, which they called ichor, was poisonous to mortals. Some bizarre and bloody facts from Barla Ventura's Beyond Bizarre. Well, that was certainly bizarre. Hippos, eh? Make their own sunscreen. There you go. You know, I'm all for that. It's good. Have you, uh, speaking about that, have you ever gone on an investigation? And I'll ask, throw that out to either one of you, but I, I think uh, Steve has done more paranormal field research than Cal. Would you agree, Cal? Mm, yes. yes. Of course I do. <laughs> oh, anyway. Steve's, like, Steve's 60 years older than me. Of course he's been on more. Yeah, right. right. With, but with age comes great wisdom. Right. <laughs> That's why Ron's the wisest person on the show. I am. If you look at my Facebook, it says born 1905. And people ask, why do I put 1905 there? And I says, that's as far back as it would let me go. Uh, (laughs) As far back as Ron can remember. Yeah, there you go. So anyway, Steve, let me ask you this. In all your investigating, uh, have you ever used uh, techniques to search for, for blood? Actually, yes. Um, I was involved uh, in a TV production. Um, yeah, and we go back to television, you know. We. Well, it's you asked the question. I know, uh, I know. But isn't it amazing, question, though? You, isn't yeah. it amazing, though? Without TV, we, we wouldn't have all this information. It's funny. Go ahead. Well, the, the particular uh, castle was Fivey Castle in Scotland. And one of the particular legends associated with Fivey Castle was that uh, on the site of a murder, a blood stain appears on the floor, and despite scrubbing and bleach and 400 years um, and numerous attempts, the blood will continue to reappear, and indeed there is a stain on the floor of the room. And what was used, um, what we tried during the program, was actually using a substance called luminol, which fans of CSI will know, Um, and ultraviolet lights and filters Mm -hmm. in order to determine whether indeed the product on the floor was blood. Um, And we found it wasn't blood, or it didn't react as blood would. Um, There is also the, you know, what does 400-year-old blood do when you spray luminol on it? Um, Mm -hmm. But it didn't react. Is there a punchline for that, Steve? No, no, no. I mean, it's the only time I can can, uh, relate uh, investigating a case where there was a blood aspect to it. We, we actually use the ultraviolet light, and we do use luminol on, on, on different cases. Uh, Lizzie Borden, of course, was one. Uh, but uh, it, it's interesting. First, let me say, never take an ultraviolet light into, like, a hotel or motel. Bad idea. Oh, God. Bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways... One of the most interesting cases that uh, that I that I've ever found was uh, from my good friend uh, Mark Nesbeth. I don't know if I have spoke to you guys about this, but this is 
uh, in a remarkable case. Uh, Mark is Mr. Gettysburg. He's uh, written about a dozen books on Gettysburg, and uh, he used to be a member of the, the Park Service and uh, was on the battlefield at night and all this other stuff. But he's also uh, a preservationist as well, and, and he works at uh, one particular place, which is the uh, da- Lady Daniel Farm or Lady Daniel Greyhound, whatever it is. But anyways, it was a field hospital like most of the other houses on, in Gettysburg. And if you go in one of the rooms, you can actually see, uh, this was the operating, and you can see bloody handprints still there on the floor uh, from where they were all lined up. Because they just used to cut your your legs off and shove them out the window. There used to be piles of legs and arms out the, outside the window up to the windowsill. But anyways, um, you, you can see the, the blood stains in the floor there. But one day... Uh, he received a call from the caretaker from the farm. He says, Mark, you got to come down right away. So we went into this operating room, and there in the middle of the operating room floor was a pool of uh, rust-colored material. So uh, he spent some time videographing it and uh, taking pictures and took a little sample in, uh, on some uh, cotton and put it in a flask and put it in his car. And after a considerable amount of time, he uh, packed up and headed out. So on the way back home, he gets a call again. He says, Mark, you've got to, from the caretaker, he says, you got to come back. So they came back to the farm and went to that same room. And the pool of red gook, whatever it was, was gone. In fact, the floor had that fine dust on it. I don't know if he's... You know, if you go in a room and you don't have much activity, you have a fine layer of dust. Well, that was still on there. So uh, anyways, he ran out to his, his car and uh, to see if the sample that he had was still there, and it was. So he sent it out to the police laboratory, and the results came back as human blood. So that's probably the weirdest blood case that I ever know about. Any comments on it? Uh, that was weird. Yeah. Wasn't it really? I mean, it, it, I I can't really. Um, I mean, it, it was odd, and there's certainly loads of cases like the one even Steve mentioned with the the stain on the floor as well. And I also I, I always particularly remember the one of Ned Kelly um, rubbing his hand in dirt and placing that on the cell wall, and people still see the handprint. And I think mm-hmm. a few people have done that, and also they've reported years later that the handprint never left, no matter how many times they tried to clean it. Well, you know, they're, they're perfectly. Um, normal substances that we know of, just mud and dirt and human blood. You know, it's not a paranormal substance, but it's having this paranormal effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but for blood to randomly appear as well, and you know, unusual stuff. You've even got the whole thing of weeping statues as well. Right. So yeah, it is a phenomena. So it's. I guess you would say it's not all that odd, then, right? Well, it's very, I mean, yeah, it's very odd if a statue starts weeping or, as in the case of uh, some of the holy relics, um, saintly blood, uh, you know, turns from solid to liquid and does all these things. It's very, very odd. Um, It's the first time I've heard of that in relation to to a a ghost investigation. Uh, But then to make a link with them and and statues that bleed and uh, the whole religious um, sort of relic... Uh, and, and well, mir- miracles. Well, well, Steve, even if you don't look at the religious end, say it's it's not not necessarily tied to religion, but still paranormal in in the same sense that this blood appearing in this house would be 
paranormal. I mean, if you take away the religious aspects of it, we're, but you still wear blood appears on the statue, it's still paranormal. Um, it's certainly very unusual, but until we find a cause, or, or rather until we find the absence of a cause, I don't think we can say with any degree of certainty it would be paranormal. Um, well, what is paranormal? Define paranormal. Well, exactly. Well, we've we've done this before, and I don't think you can define paranormal. It ha- it has a definition, as in it is parallel to above normal, but we don't understand what it is. But what we can, what we do understand is the normal, and it's you know we can look for all of the plausible, reasonable, mundane explanations as to why something took place, why the blood got there. Um, And once you rule them out, then you're not left with the paranormal. What you're left with is the unexplained. Mm -hmm. I've been told, by the way, that that the uh, pizza is here, although I didn't hear the bell. Did you? No, I didn't hear the bell. I've got to do a plug, guys. All right, do it. Um, I've been asked if if people want to read a little more on uh, Harry... There's a, a short biography appearing in the next month's edition of Silent Voices magazine here in the UK, and you can subscribe to it online at www.silentvoices, all one word, .org.uk, and I won't get lynched now. <laughs> you will get lynched now? No, I won't get lynched now. If I'd forgotten to do it, I would have been lynched. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to mention that tomorrow if I can. But, uh, yeah, I'd like to mention, too, that also that uh, today and uh, tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I will be at the Circles of Wisdom uh, for my monthly paranormal study group. And we're going to look at, Cal, you're going to love this, eyewitness, how reliable are they, as well as doing a remote investigation. And the usual telekinesis, teller uh, uh, psychometry and the other experiments we normally do. Excellent stuff. All sounds good. Yeah. So, what, anything with you, Cal, other than your book, which is Telephone Calls from the Dead? Uh, numerous projects ongoing at the moment. I'm just having to tidy up about three different articles, uh, plan ahead for some other projects in the pipeline that I've got to talk to Steve about, and about three different conferences coming up. We've got the Society of Psychical Research at the start of September, Exploring the Extraordinary, and then talks at the Scottish Society of Psychical Research in Glasgow. Okay, I'm starting to hear the tune, so that means we've got to wrap it up. I want to thank you guys once again, and we want to thank Harry Price for filling the aisle for us. So, good night and God bless. Good night. Thanks, Harry. From goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night, deliver us, good Lord.